0: Hi, Freshhead listeners. It's Will. As we near the end of 2022, I wanted to take a minute to ask for your help. You're listening to us right now for free. In fact, all of our content is open access and freely available. That includes the 40 new episodes we produced this year, as well as over 300 episodes across our entire catalog. However, it's not free to create, produce, and publish Fresh Ed. We are funded by the generous donations from listeners like you. So if you would like to support independent media, or perhaps have used Fresh Ed in your classes, or just simply love our show, then please make a donation. You can do so at freshedpodcast.com slash donate. Again, that's freshedpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for your support, and now on with today's episode. This is Fresh Shed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. As the year draws to a close, I've invited Susan Robertson and Mario Novelli back on the show to reflect on the past twelve months. What were the big events in 2022, and how might they impact the field of comparative and international education? We discuss a range of issues, from protests, to conflict, to big elections around the world. We even touch on a few existential issues, and how that impacts us and our research. I hope you enjoy the conversation, and the FreshEd team wishes you a happy and safe new year. Susan Robertson and Mario Novelli, welcome back to FreshEd.
1: Thank you, Will. Lovely to be back.
0: Yeah, thanks, Will. And I guess happy end of 2022. I don't know about you, but I am kind of excited that this year is coming to a close. What a year it's been. So to jump, I guess, into it, I've been thinking about how to reflect on the year in education, sort of broadly defined. And I guess the thing that struck me first was just how much unrest and sort of protests there were around the world from Sudan to China today, to Iran, it just seemed like protest was a constant in 2022. So I guess, you know, how do you see protest during this past year? Like, what does it mean for so much protest to be happening?
1: In many senses, I think protest is a really good thing. At the same time, you know, let us be very clear, people are risking their lives if we think of what's going on in Russia and the protests that have been taking place there. Protests also that were taking place as the elections were actually going on in uh, Brazil. So basically, I think protest actually does signal the health and sort of even a tiny, what would you say, layering of democracy, potentially where people kind of feel that their voices are so needed. And maybe also let us add in the uh, climate change protests, young people turning up to Egypt and so on. Um, But it does say something about a great unsettling in the world, as uh, Paul James and Manfred Steger actually describe it, that actually the world itself is not well with itself. And I mean by that the societies around the world, you know, we can come to the climate change and and the, the planet itself. But yes, a very unsettled set of politics. And it's something that we need to spend some time thinking about
0: issue of protest. Mark. how do you see protest in this past year? I mean, you know, stepping back a bit from the
2: protest and thinking about the drivers of that, I think is important. Know that it seems to me that we're living in a real period of crisis that manifests itself in different ways. Inability to feed whole populations, massive inequality, widespread injustices based on race, gender, class and so I think that, you know, there the protests are popping up in different places in different ways. But something about the kind of legacies of COVID that, you know, in a sense many governments stepped in during COVID borrowed money, and now we're in this spiraling crisis of balance of payments, deficits, and uh, a real feeling that the only solution is austerity. And of course, many people have no space in their daily income for austerity and more cuts. So, you know, that's leading to protests around the world. and, you know, as many authors have talked about, there's this kind of emergent separation between capitalism and democracy and how that manifests itself. And, you know, I think you can see the, the clamors for, yeah, freedom in different dimensions. No, I mean, I think the Iran protests are are really important the kind of courage of the women and men that are raising their head in this period i think it's a really really important it just shows you the kind of power of the human spirit that people will resist and they'll resist in multiple ways but uh, sadly the powers of repression are also extremely uh, strong so let's see what happens as we move forward
0: what do you think the protests that we see worldwide and the different drivers that are sort of causing it, as Mario was beginning to say, and issues around democracy, as Susan brought up. What does this have to say about comparative and international education, or what can comparative international education contribute to, to helping understand what's going on today in terms of protest?
1: So what are we doing when we're comparing and we're looking at what's going on around the world? My sense is that we might be hearing, uh, for instance, how different governments actually fared uh, with their, uh, how they managed COVID, for instance. Certainly in the UK, huge amounts of money was actually siphoned off into private pockets. And yet at the same time, you know, then people are actually paying the price. I mean, very large numbers of people who actually even hold down jobs find themselves actually having to go off to food banks. At the same time, if you look at what's going on in schools, schools are actually having to worry about rapidly uh, rising fuel costs, uh, rapidly rising food costs, where you might have actually had uh, feeding programmes for children, lunch programmes, even breakfast programmes. Even those are becoming extremely expensive. And so I think there's something important about what comparative international education could do around thinking about... When we see these uh, major crises um, and on the one hand a crisis of capitalism, on the other hand, the pandemic and I think they're two different kinds of crises. how robust their systems are for redistribution, how robust their systems are for actually just making sure <laughs> some basic forms of corruption are, are actually not happening in ways in which it kind of undermines even you know infrastructures and and, and that kind of thing. I'd really like to see um, a whole series of panels that actually look at the kind of macro, political, economic and cultural dynamics that, and that that the kind of state structures that might well have mediated and maybe the kind of the qualities of our civil societies in, in ways in which they're able to manage their way through these more fundamental crises without actually plummeting those who already kind of confronted the crisis. With even as Mario said, you know even further kind of austerity, I'm not sure what you think about those thoughts, Mario, but education you know, by definition, because it's a public good, is so dependent on public resources. And when those public resources are not available, you know, let's take people who've got private resources, but those public resources are there for individuals who actually are incredibly dependent on the public purse. And when the public purse actually has been, you know, wasted in many cases, then we're actually facing, you know, a real crisis of the social contract.
2: Oh, yes, absolutely. And I think so, you know, just pulling off that, uh, Susan, I think that, um, on the one hand, understanding the uneven geography of these processes, I think is important for us, um, understanding the drivers and what is common about some of these issues. So, you know, we've talked about austerity and uh, post-COVID debt and uh, rising inequality and thinking about those, but also recognising or pushing through in our field a recognition of the diversity of experience and not projecting out from one particular northern experience of these things. I think, you know, if we think about comparative education and it's, let's say, colonial and neo-imperial history and it's westocentric kind of roots, I think it's important that we push for a much more diverse ecology of knowledges that we bring into the field. And I think that's a challenge, but I think a very necessary challenge. And I, I do feel like we're entering a A period of much more fragmented global governance and it makes it much more important to capture that diversity in our field and you know as editors of journals as uh, presidents of societies we need to to make sure that those voices are heard in in a range of ways
0: i often think about with protest i think about aziz chowdhury's work on sort of how protest is quite educative there, these are pedagogical spaces of education that exist and can be studied and learned and thinking about what the archive of the protest is and how you can go back and sort of study these historically, but also, of course, in the contemporary moment. And, you know, I reflect on my own experiences being on picket lines in higher education in the United Kingdom pretty much every year since I moved here three years ago. And it, and they are so educated. I, I learned so much from my colleagues On the picket line and from the students that join and it you know it's often it's some of the best moments of my time in higher education is is on the picket line learning from each other
2: I mean and that you know forces us then to resist the kind of um, uh, collapsing of education and schooling and recognizing Mm. that education is so much more than that and both you know education takes place in through protests through social movements and also education takes place through the media and all of the, uh, those processes as well. So it's a kind of broadening out as well as our conceptualization of education it requires. And then also recognizing that uh, knowledge does not just exist inside universities or think tanks, but exist with people facing challenges in their lives and struggling against those. Often, they have the best sense of what is the reality of our societies, no? That's a very important thing. And, you know, I've been working the last two years on tracing the histories of four movements in four different countries, precisely that, recognising that protest bursts onto the scene, but actually, behind that, is what Aziz would say is the daily grunt labor of activists organizing, building consciousness, building communities, bringing people together which then later on appears spontaneous, but is anything but spontaneous.
1: Can I come in there? i just also give it a little bit of history. Recently I came here, I'm currently broadcasting from Australia, and I was invited to give the annual Thesis 11 lecture. And, of course, uh, it's a sociological journal, radical sociological journal. And uh, toward the end, you know, thinking about what what would it actually mean. So Thesis 11 itself for Marx, um, 1845 he wrote this, makes the really strong kind of statement in Thesis 11 itself, and there's there's 11 of these, around the importance not just to kind of think philosophically, but actually to act politically. But it's also important to look at what he describes as, what he says is is Thesis 3. So, you know, we might make our own histories, in which case we build our own institutions, in which case if we build institutions, we can unbuild those institutions. But in the second part of Thesis 3, essentially it's, it needs somehow, we need, somehow to find a kind of almost a revolutionary strategy. Um, So essentially for Marx, it'd be two kinds of education, one that more or less reproduces or sort of incremental kinds of changes, and the other, which is a much more radical rupturing of the kinds of paradigms. And I think that plays very, very nicely into, you know, the moment that we're in uh, fundamentally, where, in fact, we need a radical new paradigm, not an incremental. Um, And then let me just go forward and I've been reading quite a bit of Rosa Luxemburg and sorry to do this history lesson but you know we actually we can learn so Rosa's writing on the eve of the beginning of the first world war and if you read it now and you're thinking with uh, about Ukraine you you could swear actually, that she's writing in the contemporary moment. Um, and what she's struggling constantly with is uh, within the party itself about an evolutionary versus a revolutionary kind of strategy. And But the revolutionary strategy for her has to, and this takes us to really what you asked about, the. it has to be the wider social movement It and you learn in the movement, you learn as part of that social movement. And I think that's where, you know, absolute hats off to the young people who've been out, you know, campaigning um, and, and organising and so on. Many of those have been striking in the UK or we could go to uh, Iran and, and, and that kind of thing. So for Rosa, that's actually where you do learn politics and that's actually the educative, the more radical revolutionary educative kind of space because essentially... And particularly if it's connected across nation-state boundaries, that you see this as as part of a a much, much kind of wider movement. And I think a good society, if it's able to make a contribution, actually plays down the boundaries uh, around each of these societies, because they are nation-state bound in many senses, and actually sees their capacity to connect voices and politics and concerns across a wide range of different kinds of spaces, places, and and politics.
0: I find a lot of meaning in that analysis. But then when I think about sort of 2022 and today, I don't see a lot of these connections being made across nation states from that sort of revolutionary protest point. But I do see a lot of connections being made by sort of far-right groups that they're they're sort of creating this far right internationale. And that to me is this really sad moment to live through in a way. You know, it's not what Rosa Luxemburg was talking about in lead up to World War One, or after World War One.
1: Yeah, and Saskia Sassen she reflects on this. She says, how is it that, in fact, actually, when you're looking at the uh, Chiapas and the social movements and the indigenous movements in Mexico, but actually if you looked at who got connected quickly, who advanced their agendas and interests really quickly, it was finance capital. You know, And her comment when she starts getting into uh, a, a series of books that she puts out that included uh, territory authority rights is that we kind of fail to learn you know, capitalism and the, and the right, you know, have been you know almost kind of at one level counter hegemonic forces I mean we actually by assuming that the kind of counter hegemonic always lies with the left, we make some really poor assumptions because I mean it can come from the left and the right. Um, in that sense, you know, who says, let's say, the right are not doing so called critical theory? Of course, they actually are. They're unpicking, unpa- they're unpacking, they're unraveling um, a set of kind of sets of arrangements that might have actually secured, um, let's say, uh, some forms of redistribution to actually suit their own ends. And they've done it, and this is what we've got. And so, in a way, can we dare say this? We actually have to learn from the right, at least in terms of strategy.
0: Would you agree, Mario?
2: You know, I cut my spurs, if you like, in the anti-globalisation movement, no, at the turn of the millennium, Aziz II. That's when I first had contact with Aziz Chowdhury. And, of course, there was that period where there was a whole range of global protests and you really felt like you were in a movement that was talking to each other. And, you know, post 9-11, all that fragmented in a whole range of ways. Now, after Mm -hmm. the failure to stop the war in Iraq and, you know, a kind of rise of um, localism, I think Mm -hmm. we still have that legacy of. But I, I kind of see... Some signs of a reemergence of that through the kind of push for a kind of global green new deal, the protests, uh, in Egypt recently over the COP meeting that I think gives some hope of a, a coherent left understanding of the relationship between capitalism, inequality, resource extraction and the climate change. And, uh, so, you know, let's see how that develops. But yeah, definitely the communication is important across borders and communication is also important within borders. No, thinking about those movements that have been successful in recent years is they've managed to cross identity domains. No, managed to Turkey with the HDP managed to link Kurdish movement, women's organizations, gay movements, ethnic group together. Colombia, recent election, similar, Pacto Histórico, Historic Pact, which brought together black communities, women's organizations, indigenous groups. So Mm. there is a need to both talk beyond borders, but also re-articulate relationships between protesting movements within borders and i think that has been a challenge that is a a real challenge in in many parts of the world because um a lot of there is a lot of isolation within particular movements but you know i think that we've already touched on some movements uh for Mm -hmm. example in iran which started and looked like it was about gender and women and actually emerges as a much broader protest supported by men and women against theocracy and authoritarian rule and oppression, So and raising issues of Kurdish autonomy and those kind of areas. So I think that that dialogue is happening and, and does emerge through struggles. You no, know? So like you were saying earlier, that people learn through the struggle who are their allies, who are their enemies, how to build strategy.
0: It would be great if some of these broad coalitions could definitely be strengthened into 2023. You know, I'd like to just shift focus a little bit. You know, another thing that really, I guess, shocked me in 2022 was sort of the level of violence that just sort of seemed worldwide. You know, from the COVID deaths that are still with us, still a huge number of people dying every, you know, in 2022, from the wars in Yemen and Ethiopia, and of course in Ukraine, from the mass shootings in sometimes in schools, uh, mostly in the USA, to sort of high-level assassinations that uh, sort of shocked at least me. You know, I wasn't ready for political figures to be assassinated, and so it just was a it was a shocking sort of violent year in a way. And I guess the you know the question is, what does this say? or about comparative education, or, or or what can comparative education do to try and understand some of this violence and this conflict that seems so present this year?
1: Now, I've just read a really uh theory, culture, and society, really interesting analysis of neoliberalism, but particularly focused on Hayek and a rereading of many of Hayek's kind of texts. And it's not that perhaps we don't know Uh, Some of this, and I wouldn't want to also blame it all on Hayek either. But nevertheless, this idea for Hayek, actually, he was very Darwinian, as we know, you know, it's the fittest, uh, the most productive that are actually going to survive. Optimistic cruelty is the way in which that's kind of being framed. And that, in fact, actually, cruelty, you know, uh, humiliation, uh, those kinds of embodiments of, um, you know, shame in relation to cruelty and things like that. It's argued that looking at actually some of the original texts of Hayek, that's actually the writing of Hayek. So one of the things we might actually say, and it doesn't apply to all parts of the world, that certainly there's a dominant ideology where in that dominant ideology, neoliberalism, that in fact, actually almost part of the DNA of a Hayekian version of neoliberalism. I think then you could probably go to Russia and this is, it would seem to me a kind of nostalgia for an old kind of empire again potentially linked to notions of humiliation as well to do with long standing you know issues in and around uh, for Russia for example NATO and its encro- encro- encroachment onto what Russia saw as its kind of space and sphere of interest and that kind of thing um will uh, Davies writes a lot around what he calls nervous states Um, and he would say that in fact actually uh, alongside this very pernicious hyper individualism entrepreneurship and so on is what you actually get is you know the alter ego of that is essentially uh, kind of a high level of a sense of self-doubt, resentment, vulnerability. I mean, those two things kind of go together. Now, I've made it sound too simple because, of course, neoliberalism doesn't look the same uh, everywhere and all the world is not actually kind of governed through those kinds of uh, ideological projects. But there is something about the way in which we've become so much more cruel.
2: I agree that I think the history of capitalism is also a, a violent process, you no? Know, from creative destruction, accumulation by dispossession, all of those kind of things, of course, are violent, the creation of nation states. But with a more kind of presentist or let's say the last few decades, I do think that something happened post 9-11 to do real damage to the idea of an international rule-based world that the West lost its moral authority in Abu Ghraib, in black sites around the world where torture was widespread, uh, disappearances, abductions, the killing of thousands of people in Iraq and Afghanistan that, in a sense, sent a signal to everyone else that the gloves are off and, you know, whatever you want to do. And, you know, I think that there is a, a chain there that leads to state assassinations while, uh, you know, uh, willful uh, interventions or rise of authoritarianism in different parts of the world, uh, breaking down. Uh, issues around democracy and those kind of things, which which may be a historical cycle, you know, because we've been through these sh- pendulum kind of shifts from democracy to authoritarianism. Think Latin America in the 70s uh and 80s. But nevertheless, I do think there's something about the kind of loss of moral authority of the West post 9-11 that bear some responsibility for these things, no? Not all responsibility, and, uh, you know, I don't want to kind of rant on as a kind of rabid anti-imperialist that only sees violence in our own societies, but sometimes that, those connections get lost, and it's, you know, the brutal Putin or the rogue actor there, but there is a sense that things are breaking down And we created the conditions for that breakdown.
0: It's sort of like uh, international relations. They often talk about the post 9-11 is sort of creating this moment of perpetual war. And I I think it is good to sort of recognize that, that history and that continuity, even in a year like 2022, which might have seemed even more violent in a way, or, or violent in ways beyond just, you know, quote-unquote war. Bringing up war and issues of Ukraine and just some of the other wars that, of course, have been going on, like in Yemen and Ethiopia, it it does make me think, I've had a few conversations this year with people in comparative education about the anti-war movement, and I guess this kind of links back to this notion of protests and, and building coalitions both within a nation-state but ac- across Nation-state boundaries, and you know, I guess the question is, to what extent does comparative education sort of contribute to anti-war movements, if at all? And you know, how do we understand the anti-war movement that exists today? Is it fit for purpose?
2: Let's start with Ukraine. Yeah? I mean, because in a sense, that seems to have been the story of this year. That I think, if we if we reflect on on the, this process, it's incredibly difficult to talk about two sides of a story in Ukraine, right? And I think what we've seen over the last months is the effect of that in keeping silent questions to be raised about the fact that we don't have to support Putin to recognise the role of NATO in creating the conditions under which Putin invaded, right? Mm. And for me, this reflects a broader problem, which is also in our in our broader field of a kind of binary thinking. Yeah, If we support the Palestinians, we must be anti-Semitic. No, we can't kind of move forward if we can't hold two things in our minds at the same time. And it's extremely difficult to build an anti-war movement in this country at the moment because this is a state led project. The war in Ukraine is a state-led project for the UK. And it's very, very difficult to find spaces to build opposition to that. And it's very difficult to talk about it. And I've done that myself in in my own university and felt quite isolated. So I think that there is a challenge for us. It will come. People will start to raise these issues. But at the moment, it reflects the fact that it's easy to be critical of human rights. And violations and violence, when your when your own state is of the same opinion, when your own state is of a different opinion, then you start to have these challenges. And that's the case we're in, I think, with, with, with the whole fallout from the Ukraine conflict, is there's not too much space for debate without being accused of being part of Russian state media as uh, you get labelled in Twitter if you raise any issues.
1: But, I mean, it is then, Will, come back to your question that you asked, is what does this all mean for comparative and international education? And I guess one question, I think, is, you know, do we actually have the the kind of tools, really, that we need to talk about these complex kinds of, of issues? Do we actually have the protections in our institutions to enable us to talk about these kinds of issues? Certainly it's bit touch and go in the UK, uh, given the so-called free speech and the um, ways in which you know, there's sort of monitoring of the kinds of conversations that are taking place on campus and so on. So I think there's t- two elements to what I've just put out there. One, essentially, do we actually look at the curriculum and our pedagogy and ask questions about you know global comparative international education studies and how fit for purpose they actually are to really tackle these complex kinds of issues in our conversations to learn to listen to multiplicities and yet on the other hand you know being also incredibly mindful of this, the changed circumstances that let's say institutions of higher learning universities in Turkey would be a good example Mario you're not free to talk at all. Um, about many of these issues. I imagine it would would be Hong Kong, another example, Iran, another example. Many of the university students were actually being rounded up, you know, in huge numbers. And, you know, we could, de- I'm sure we could go to some of the, you know, universities in, in Russia saying. So it's the conditions for knowledge production are actually at the moment critical, radical knowledge production, or even just considered, considering complexities of issues are all under a lot of pressure.
2: One book that I've been really influenced by over the last year um, Michael Rothberg, Implicated Subjects. On victims and perpetrators, which um, Michael Rothberg is a professor of Holocaust studies in the US. And uh, essentially, the book um, revolves around trying to understand the way that there's a lot of binary thinking around, you know, who are the victims and who are the perpetrators, and he tries to open that up and talk about the way that we are implicated in a range of human rights violations, including poverty and inequality, and that we need to open up that discussion. And I think all of this is precisely circulates around that is to say you know in, in a sense to what extent is comparative education or the university implicated in those violations that are taking place and you know sometimes our silence is implication yeah our failure to speak out and to challenge injustice no what's it like to be a russian in the uk now do we care about that What's it like to be a young Russian around the world? I think we need to raise those issues and to start to say, you know, who are we working for? What is the greater purpose? How are we implicated and try to address that? And I think the the concept of the implicated subject is helpful because it does allow for a dialogue, a space to recognise that we're not all equally implicated, but let's just open up that discussion and try to understand issues around privilege, issues around... Power and inequality that that emanate from that, and you know certainly universities are one space uh, of important implication in a whole range of issues.
0: You know, I think for comparative ed, like you said, really getting away from this binary thinking is it would be really helpful, and being able to hold tension and contradiction and and live with it and try and understand it it seems to be a really uh, important part of the academic project in a way you know something that knowledge production should work towards so uh, i do want to move to things that perhaps are let's use the word less heavy you know more hopeful because 2022 of course was not all dire and i think the talk on protest actually does sort of indicate that there's a lot of really interesting spaces hopeful spaces that do exist. But I I sort of want to ask you, you know, what were you hopeful about in 2022? Were there any examples or or instances that that just sort of made you think differently or in new ways, maybe sort of, yeah, just understood the world differently because of something that happened in 2022?
1: Maybe, Mario, the big thing, and Will, the big thing that happened is that, in fact, actually, for many of us, I know there are death rates with COVID, but, you know, now there are certain, you know, drugs that can kind of, you can take, um, many of us have just gone back to our, you know, daily life and our daily business, uh, harder to get some individuals back into, you know, workplaces and and, and so on, but nevertheless, what an astonishing feat of science that is. If we want to really think of it that there there was as it all started, you know a sense that this might be two to three years, and yet essentially not only um, are they able to you know deal with some of the variegate or variations and uh, that kind of thing, but you know with four um, and, and i'm not of course not all the world has actually been lucky enough to get um, top up jabs and that kind of thing, but to some extent, I know the world's not come back to where it used to be um, and nor nor should it actually because, you know, people are travelling again but my understanding is that in fact actually many, many fewer travels we're learning to use the internet much more for things like meetings and, and things like that. Now, it, it it seems to me that we do have to actually celebrate some of that, you know. Um, I yeah. don't think we thought the beginning of 2020 it would happen that quickly and that's a, a, a sheer... Marvel. Now I know many, you know, companies have benefited hugely from the, the kind of manufacturing of the uh, the vaccines and things like that. And we need to do an awful lot more in terms of redistribution of uh, the vaccines and things like that. But I I want to hold on to that as a, a as a very hopeful uh, moment.
2: I'll move continents and say that uh, Colombian elections last summer. I think were personally a very important thing for me because you know, I've been working with organisations and movements for the last two decades uh, in Colombia. And in the turn of the uh, millennium, late 1990s, um, uh, I was working with a British organisation, War on Want, which I'm now a, a, a trustee of. Um, and we raised funds to start a diploma in human rights in the southwest of Colombia. And in the third cohort of that programme uh, was a young... Black single mother who uh, represented the process of black communities, one of uh, a Colombian social movements. And she is now the vice president of Colombia, Francia Marquez. And for me, that 20 year journey is an example of what we began this talk with. The power of popular education. It's not about, it's not just about her. It's about the movements that are behind that process. It's about the coming together. In that diploma and other spaces in Colombia of different movements and building commonalities, building understandings, recognising difference, but also building kind of common objectives that came to fruition in that process. And, you know, for those of people that don't know anything about Colombia, Colombia has never had a left-wing government in its history. So this is a huge event that, for me, gave amazing optimism. It continues to inspire uh, me, and I think that there is something that is signalled by that, which is happening in a a range of different parts of the world, which which I think, you know, potentially is precisely that catalyst that we were talking about to build a new type of internationalism Mm. that, you know, respects diversity, understands histories, variegated histories but doesn't get lost in particularities and manages Mm -hmm. to hold on to a common humanity. And I think that's a really really important and hopeful thing for
1: me. I was just going to say, and for sure, yes, we can... Lula wins by a a kind of a tiny margin, but that's incredibly important that, in fact, actually the Chilean elections that were held, as we know, but essentially they were voting on the constitution, they couldn't land a new constitution. And in a way that's not surprising if you've got privilege and so on, you're not going to give up that so easily. So that's going to be a a fight and a battle. But I do want to actually say, too, that um, the... I was recently or last year, elected uh, president of the Comparative International Education Society and be hosting the 2024 conference. And the theme will be the power of protest. And for uh, the organizing committee, um, for us, it will be really, really important to try and uh, bring into the conversation the, the kinds of individuals and movements and so on that were involved as both school children into uh, universities, now into the parliament in Chile and so on. So, that actually having encounters with, and these are not overnight things. These were, if you think of Chile, I mean, 2006 actually, the Chilean so called penguins uh, start getting organized and almost take control of their. Schools, these school kids. So, I mean, there's a bit of a long march here, but actually you can begin to see some outcomes, just as Maya described with with Colombia. So it's a set of commitments that actually will require kind of year-on-year organizing, strategizing, uh, realizing, uh, and so on, celebrating.
0: I'd like to highlight two things that I thought just were amazing and made me think of the world differently and myself differently. And the first one is the James Webb Telescope that was launched. I watched it going up and have been following it very closely ever since. And I am just sort of almost without words how amazing it is to be able to look back in time and through space and understand the sort of origins of the universe in new ways. And it just makes me realize how insignificant I am. And I sort of, I absolutely love that feeling. And I think that's so humbling and just. Yeah, I mean, it was this existential moment for me in in 2022. It almost reminds me of the Voyager being sent off with Carl Sagan's golden record. You know, I didn't get to live through that moment, but I did get to live through the James Webb moment. And I I don't think I'll ever see myself or the world the same ever again.
1: I mean, your description about Putting us in our place, I think, is really important. I'm often reminded on that. If you look at um Asian art, for instance, you know, versus Western art, so we foreground the great person; they occupy most of the visual space in a painting, don't they? But if you go to some of the kind of East Asian art. A human being might be a tiny, tiny, tiny little figure amongst, you know, nature. And I think that is a metaphor for trying to understand the way in which we hubristically have actually allowed ourselves to think that we are so much bigger, so much more superior than anything else around us. And so the web kind of space taking us back in time or going out and actually reminding ourselves of our place in the universe, you know, I think we should do more of
2: it makes me think uh, around you know when, when we talk about critical realist uh, approaches to research we talk about being methodologically modest no? that the tools that we have to understand the complexity of reality do not match the complexity of that reality and uh, mm. in a sense when you look at those pictures or more broadly think about humans relationship to nature is that we are so insignificant so tiny yet we've placed ourselves so much at the forefront of everything no and so it, it does allow you to step back and you know i think uh, you know some of these things just to tie up some of the other things is i think that you know when i talked about colombia there's a recognition for the first time over the last decades of the importance of listening to indigenous communities who knew their relationship or have a very different conceptualization of their relationship to nature and uh, as this kind of mother that needs to be protected and supported and nurtured. And I think that, you know, we look around the world now and see the power of nature unleashing upon us a whole range of different uh, challenges, and it makes us realize that, you know, maybe our path, to presume that humans can overcome everything through science, you know, was somewhat limited and that we need to be a bit more modest about that and try to rectify some of these things. But uh, it does also make me think when you look at those images, whether there are other more sophisticated <laughs> species out there that may, <laughs> may have better answers than us, no?
0: I hope so. You know, to build on that, Mario, you know, the, the other sort of moment that really was inspiring to me was actually the Australian elections. Because what what happened during the first moment when they they announced the winner, Albanese, I think it was Peggy Wong went out and was introducing him to, to say that he won. And the first thing she says is that she recognizes the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which is this statement that was put together like with a huge amount of effort across the diversity of indigenous communities in Australia. And it was, it was actually created with consensus, right? So every single community group that was brought together agreed with this statement. And that was the first thing that this new government said and and acknowledged and said they're going to recognize it. And to me, that was just this struggle. And I think this goes to what Mario, you were saying, these long-term struggles, decades, centuries in the making, reaching consensus, all that labor that might go unrecognized. And then it sort of shoots up the national or international stage sort of instantaneously. Uh, And it seems like it came from nowhere. But course there's that long history and it, to me that it was just really inspiring to to witness it now of course how does it translate into actions is the next sort of question but at least rhetorically it was a really big moment
1: there was nothing natural or inevitable about that let's say a different government got back into power that would not have actually emerged potentially as a possibility so it does matter the kinds of you know, often we think left right or whatever you know what's the difference but actually in this particular case It does, it has made a difference. It actually has made a difference. And there's a, as my understanding is a strong commitment to that in the first kind of round, you know, let's say if they went to another election, um, it would be this that would be foregrounded. Um, At the same time, I don't think we should just kind of think that it's all just going to unfold and going to happen. Having spoken to some uh, of the Indigenous community in Australia, they're hopeful, but at the same time feel doubtful so there's this hopeful doubtful kind of moment and I'm it's hardly surprising because they've lived in the shadows for ever since they were invaded if not uh, in in a space of uh, complete indifference to their plight so it's I think the battle is not over at all and there will be attempts to water it down because there are big interests involved as well
2: Well, it reminds me of my good friend uh, Berenice Saleta, which talked about the Rio Magdalena, which is a big river in Colombia, that she used that as a metaphor for the history of these kind of social protests, that Mm. it rises and lowers but always returns, no. and so sometimes it's these kind of cycles, long cycles of processes of struggle that are challenged, but then they come back. And, you know, that gives you always hope, I think, even in the darkest Mm -hmm. times that that movements can develop and and change can come, no progressive social change.
0: So to sort of end this reflection on the year, I guess it's always good to look into the next year. Uh, So with 2023, just around the corner, just a few days, Days away by the time this airs. What are you looking forward to? Anything in 23, 2023 that is sort of on the horizon that you're excited about?
2: That's a challenge for me, actually, uh, just, just like you. I mean, I'm guessing that uh, for us, if we take it localized in the UK, uh, our universities are in for a tough ride, strike action, austerity, and massive slashes to academics pensions or... Mm are leading us to think that the next year there's going to be a range of, of struggles around that. So I think that's going to focus a lot of us in the UK. The US elections are the primaries and, you know, what does that mean for the rest of us? And those are two things. In our field, we have, of course, the beginnings of all the ongoing range of debates uh, taking place in the field around, you know, the kind of decolonization those processes. Susan is going to take over the presidency of uh, CIS and all of those things will open up new possibilities, new discussions, new spaces.
1: I mean as a journal editor which is at one level the biggest hat really that we're kind of wearing both Mario and myself as the co-editors of uh, Globalization Societies and Education and I'm super excited, really, uh, around uh, work coming through our journal, and it, that's a kind of litmus for the concerns people have, the conversations they're having, the kind of research that they believe is important. Geopolitics, higher education, uh, a fabulous special issue on Paulo Freire, Global Educator. There's uh, a special issue coming through around, and probably likely two issues to of a volume, uh, around teacher labour issues, Um, And so on. Now, what that kind of tells me is that actually uh, critical engagement uh, with things that matter a lot to people. If I paraphrase uh, the the wonderful scholar Andrew Sayer, um, you know, the things that matter to people, Um, and. And these these matter. Um, I've been so bowled over, also in Cambridge, and students as organisers, major organisers, major major organisers on the uh, picket line and things like that. You know, st- speaking out, stepping out, and and so on. I mean, I, it sounds like they're kind of in engagements with potentially kind of heavy issues, but in fact, actually, there's a lightness that comes with being able to look at that, to see that that's bubbling along, to actually think that, in fact, people have just not got their head down and, you know, pretending that these things are not there and don't matter. Um, and, and and we benefit from that uh, hugely. So I'm super excited particularly for quality of the kind of debate that's going on in in GSE and um, would want to um, encourage, you know, more of that through the different societies that we're functioning in.
2: Yeah, I knew that I'd missed something when I was talking and I realised that uh, it's something that I've been thinking about quite a bit recently. It may be too early next year to see the full ramifications of this, but my own feeling is that we're entering now into a new Cold War period. And for the last 30 years, we've had a process around the world which has been dominated by the idea that no two McDonald's ever went to war. The idea that the spreading and interconnection of global capitalism would stop uh, tensions, make everybody integrated. And what we've seen in both tensions in Russia, post-Ukraine invasion, but also towards China and issues around Taiwan, is the beginnings of a process of disembedding global capitalism, reconstituting new borders, new lines. And I think, you know, what does that mean for international education and development? What does it mean for the global education industry? And it's a very, you know, it's... We're educationists, right, so we're involved in this area. But more generally, uh, we're seeing this process happen in all different social domains, no? And those that were arguing for integration 30 years ago, when we were in the anti-globalisation movement, have reversed, no? So you've got people like Vijay Prashad and uh, leftists arguing for not, don't exclude, don't put up these balls. Keep people together, keep dialogue going. And on the other side, those that previously were advocating for all of these uh, processes of integration are now saying, no, let's cut these companies out. Let's stop that. Let's stop integration. Mm-hmm. So. I think that there are real challenges from comparative education there to ensure that we keep dialogue between colleagues in different parts of the world to ensure that we maintain relationships and start to and not be reduced to the decisions of our nation states, our leaders, our political leaders uh, of the best way to do that. And I think that's going to be a really trying period. And, you know, we have historical precedents, so it's been easy to go back to the playbook for the for the West of Russophobia, Chinophobia, Sinophobia, all these kind of things. But we also have a history of transcending those processes. We have history of movements that said neither Washington nor Moscow, but international solidarity. We have grassroots relationships that we can recall and reimagine. And I think that it's important Within the comparative and education field, that we start to address these, but also to study them, though, because it's, it's it's a fascinating thing. I mean, think about the push for internationalization, U.S. campuses in China, and all of these kind of things. What is going to happen? It's it, it's mm. it's a it's a fascinating time, even if it is equally frightening.
0: And I think that's a fantastic way to sort of end the year. Fascinating thinking about the future, equally frightening. But there is a place for us in comparative ed to contribute to that sort of future. So Susan Robertson, Mario Novelli, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. as always. Happy New Year, and I look forward to talking to you in 2023.
1: Wonderful to speak to you again, Will, and have a wonderful end of 2022 and see you in 2023.
2: Thanks, Will. Thanks, Susan. It's always a pleasure at the end of the year to have this beautiful chance to reflect amongst friends on, uh, you know, monumental year and uh, some of the challenges that we face.
0: Mario Novelli is professor in the political economy of education at the University of Sussex. Susan Robertson is a professor of sociology of education, they co-edit the journal, Globalization, Societies, and Education. A transcript of today's interview with a selection of resources for further exploration can be found at freshheadpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Fresh Ed's team includes Sherry Yang, Fante Akhtas, Obafemi Ogunleye. and Dion Jiang, Annabelle Afroboteng, Anya Lin, Phyllis Che Mensa, and Jose Neto. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, the UCL Institute of Education, NORAG, the Shaktev Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Fresh Ed by visiting freshheadpodcastcom slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next year.